You're listening to a sponsored episode on The Top Line. Welcome, everyone. I am Stephanie Butler, a Senior Conference Director at Fierce Life Sciences, and we're here to discuss what I think is a really critical topic today. It's the importance of incorporating the patient's psychosocial health status into treatment decisions. And I have here with me John Kane, who is Senior Vice President and Managing Director at MedThink Communications, which is a finger paint group company. So welcome, John. Thank you, Stephanie, and thanks for inviting me. I appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity to share some of this interesting information. So before we begin, if you can give me a little bit of your background and uh, background on the company, that would be great. Great. First things first, thank you for uh, inviting me today. I appreciate it, and I'm excited to speak with you. My background, I'm a lifelong marketer with over 30 years experience working in promotion and medical education. Uh, Over the course of my career, I have worked in a number of therapeutic categories where I can pull and draw from as we uh, provide solutions to our clients. I'm currently the Senior Vice President and Managing Director of MedThink Communications. Uh, What we do is, is, you know, we have a vision, which is to close the gap between scientific knowledge and clinical practice. Another way we like to look at this is we turn information into outcomes. We, and on the medicine communication side, work predominantly with commercial teams, and our focus is on shaping physician beliefs through different innovative programs that we do. No, that's a, it's really interesting, and it's a really interesting development, I think, in this space, and especially with regards to this topic. So I want to find out from you, based on what you're doing, why is it important for physicians to consider the patient's psychosocial status and not just the clinical status when they're developing treatment plans, especially for serious chronic diseases? Yeah, I, that is a really important question to ask. The, the, the shorter answer is a patient's psych, psychosocial status can significantly impact the treatment outcome. It's well documented that well-adjusted patients have better outcomes than those who have challenges or challenges that aren't addressed by their team. So if you think about this, the best possible outcomes will come from healthcare providers who take a more holistic approach that encompasses the patient's biopsychosocial state. So we know it can impact their outcomes, but how can it? Like, so how can the how can these psycho, psychosocial factors actually impact the patient patient's treatment outcomes, right, and their prognosis? And how can understanding them then enhance the effectiveness of medical treatments and interventions. All right, let's start with factors like depression, stress, virtual isolation, low emotional resilience, all can negatively impact treatment compliance. They can impact the disease progression, recurrent risk of cancer and and mortality risk across the spectrum of diseases. Now, when you layer in on top of that financial barriers, an unstable living condition, that can also exacerbate the situation. And it gets even more crazy is that chronic diseases themselves can lead to emotional distress, anxiety, depression, and social isolation. But then at the, at the same time, it's a, challenge, it's a challenge. In return, if somebody has these anxiety, depression, and, and emotional distress, that can exacerbate the chronic disease. So what you end up with is this negative symbiotic loop. It's so important, and yet 
it, you don't really think about it that much, you know, like from this industry. So I, I'm also curious, so you're talking about how their psychosocial status will impact their outcomes, but how can it also influence their treatment choices? Like not just the outcomes, but also the choices they make for their specific treatments. I do want to touch on just one thing. There are a couple of diseases just in terms of, if you look at diabetics, this comes off a lot in endocrinology. Um, Patients with depression have a 29% higher risk of dying over a five to 10 year period. So if that's not addressed, it has a significant impact. The other thing is social isolation and loneliness, and you see this a lot in elderly, is associated with a 29% uh, increased risk in mortality with patients who have CAD or coronary artery disease. That kind of data is one of the things that, that struck us. And one that I really focused on is in cancer, there is a specific link between psychosocial distress and survival rates. For every one point increase in psychosocial distress on a scale, there's a 4% higher risk of cancer mortality. So that just sets up how important this is. That's some pretty kind of convincing data and information on how much of an impact this can actually have. I was going to say, you asked a question about how does it influence their, the physician's treatment choices. So I wanted to just give you context of how serious of a situation or a factor this is. When the physician understands the patient's status, they can clearly tailor the, the strategies to that patient and give them the best opportunity. Now, it works for patients who are well-adjusted as well. For example, a patient with an anxiety disorder who has really strong family and social support, they may be directed to try cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT before going to a medication because there's a good chance that will have a positive effect. On the other hand, you might look at a patient who has a history of non-adherence, and what the physicians may do there is choose a long-acting or extended release formulation to try to overcome that. But one of the things that that when you start getting into some really serious conditions like, like cancer, certain chemotherapy regimens can exacerbate anxiety or depressive symptoms. And those who have depression or anxiety have a almost a 40% risk of all-cause mortality. So that's the kind of stuff that it's important for the physician to identify if there are psychosocial challenges and intervene and get them support or at least direct them to it. The physicians aren't going to be the ones to actually do it. They can be the ones to monitor and see how the patient is progressing, but they really need to get them in front of experts or get them on medication or treatments that help with that. Right, because it can have an actual real-world impact on the outcomes, right? But so given that, like, why then do procedural and pharmacological interventions then often take precedence over addressing the psychosocial aspects of the patient's conditions? That's pretty um, easy. When you think about a physician who's a specialist, okay, they may receive some training on psychosocial realm and they know how it affects the disease. But most of their skill sets and their focus gravitates towards their specialty. And most of their training in that specialty is around the technical and biological aspects compared to the psychosocial. So uh, down the road, our goal is to really to elevate the psychosocial so that's seen on the same level. There's also a culture in medicine 
that has prioritized these technical and biological factors because they're tangible. Come in, you right. take this, yeah. you, you get a result and, and you move on, but you're not reeling with the downstream sequelae that can come from people who are having, say, anxiety or, or, or emotional challenges. There's also, there's a, a practical business side. There's pressure on physicians by the institution or even by the patients to quickly resolve a situation. The, the psychosocial aspect is a little more squishy. It takes time. <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah. that's it. And then, then another idea, you know, I, these, these themes keep coming up is that there's still a stigma around mental health issues. Yeah. And there may be a discomfort on the physician's part, and they want to avoid this. It's easier to write a prescription, tell them how to take it and, and move them on. Yeah, it, it makes sense. Like I, when you explain it like that, it's just given how important it is, it just seems it seems like it's something that should be addressed. What are then some of the there must be barriers, right? So what are some of the common barriers, challenges the physicians face when they're trying to assess and then incorporate the patient's psychosocial status into their treatment plan? You start with, you look at physicians. Physicians are not um, very happy in their positions right now. The stress level and the burnout, people leaving medicine. A lot of that is because of the environments that they're working in. So you think about, and I see this as the number one challenge, is physicians have limited time with each Mm -hmm. patient. Right? That makes it really challenging for them to thoroughly assess someone from a psychosocial need. And again, they they don't have to treat it per se, but what they have to do is identify where this patient is on that scale and make a determination where they go from there. But when you have limited time available, they're likely going to focus on the physical symptoms and medical intervention. That to me is the number one barrier. Another barrier, and I I alluded to this a little earlier, is the uh, lack of training. The medical training traditionally emphasizes biomedical aspects, not social. And a physician just may not have the confidence to do that. Now, they may have, you know, the physician may not, but there may be somebody else, a PA or somebody else in the the office that can do that. But I'm not sure that all of the specialists that I know I interact with are really making this a priority and it's top of mind. Then then you have the patient side, okay? So you're, you're, say a physician wants to address the psychosocial status of a patient and understand how they're doing. Patients may be hesitant to disclose sensitive issues, maybe because they have concerns about stigma or a breach of confidentiality. Or to be honest, sometimes patients don't tell the truth. How, how often do you drink? Oh, I only have <laughs> half a drink a week. We know it, it's that. But what physicians really need to do in, in this is build the relationship with the patient, emphasize that confidentiality, and make it clear that you're there to help. If they don't have that open and honest communications, they're going to struggle to understand uh, and, and eventually address what the issues are. Yeah, I, I can go on. I have there's more and more <laughs> barriers. Okay, but w- thinking about the barriers, there has to be some specific strategies or tools that physicians can use to help them in the space, right? To help them assess and incorporate that psychosocial status of their patients into their treatment plans, right? So what are what do you think are some of those kind of strategies or tools that they can use to help overcome these barriers? 
surprisingly, there's a fair amount of information and tools out there. It's just the physician has to have it top of mind and they have to be set up and maybe incorporated into their workflows, but this is an aspect of it. So the American Academy of Family Physicians, they have several guidelines and tools available on their websites. They have how to screen for social determinants of health. They have a, there's an interesting tool that they have, which is managing behavioral health issues in primary care with a, with, and they offer six, five minute tools the physician can use. And what I liked about that one is very practical. It can be turned around. Uh, many of the, the medical societies, particularly those that focus on diabetes and endocrinology, they have a lot of information that they can, uh, people can turn to. Additionally, there are well-known and validated screening tools. There's something called the PHQ-9 depression questionnaire or the GAD-7 anxiety questionnaire. There, there's a number one, there's others for assessing PTSD. But the good news about them, these are all single page, less than 20 question documents hmm. that can be done. And a lot of them do not have to be done right in front of the physician. You can do them in the waiting room while you're waiting. But at least it gives, you know, should the physician probe any more or not? But I don't know how often physicians work this, like I said, into their daily practice. A lot of physicians know about it, but I don't know how often there's action taken. About it. There are other tools and that the psychiatric journals often publish these validation studies and with tools to help other types of clinicians. The other thing is if you can, if you get a glimpse or a sense that a patient is struggling, whether it's financially or emotionally, you can refer them to patient social workers, but a lot of times medical institutions or the medical system is not set up to make that transition easier. So anytime you have a hiccup, it's likely to stop yeah. there. It, it seems to me that there's a bigger picture here, right? Like that this is a, that this is a systematic issue, right? So I, I wonder how can we promote a shift in the healthcare system to prioritize integrating these psychosocial aspects into the treatment plans, right? And then how can pharma companies and pharmaceutical companies support physicians in addressing those the patient's psychosocial needs? Yeah, that, that's the million-dollar question. Right. Uh, I think <laughs> but the first thing is we know that pharma has expertise and power in research. I, I, funding some research is something that pharma could do. They could bring stakeholders across different disease states together and look at this and develop some evidence-based information. There's a lot of evidence-based information around, but it's fragmented and you have to pull it together. That's why there's a number of meta-analysis, but are they current? People know this generally, but I think if there were something more robust that physicians could turn to and use, I think that would at least start and get their attention. And think about it. Physicians are scientists at nature. They want that evidence-based information. Mm -hmm. So I think pharma could help there. Obviously, and this is where we come in a lot, is raising awareness and education. And yeah. really, if you think about the spectrum of education, it's from the, the physicians to the patients to the caregivers. Caregivers pay, play a really a big role. 
I was in literally in a meeting this morning and, and we have a client who has a challenge with discontinuations when they initiate therapy. And part of it was looking, we were looking at what's the psychosocial status, not only of the patient, but of the caregiver. That factors wow. in too. So there's a lot of different um, areas of, of education that can be used. Trying to get policy changes that support an integrative care model. If you think about it, a lot of physicians are disincentivized because they're focused on how many physicians, how many patients can you see, do your procedure and move them on. The psychosocial aspect takes a little more time. So until the system adjusts, that dynamic will always be there. So I think th this is, you need a groundswell and you need to create momentum and it's going to have to happen on multiple fronts. And there could be policy changes. It could be yeah. advocacy from the different disease states. There's a number of people to come together. But again, it's somewhat fragmented. You don't have one entity or one person driving this charge. So somebody's going to have to step up and, and take this on. Other things that we can do from an agency perspective, we can develop digital health tools, assessment scales, questionnaires. We can do that and make sure that it's tailored to the diseases we're working in and help physicians. Tools don't work if physicians don't use them. And that's why we, you have to get that and you have to keep that top of mind. I think one of the things we've been somewhat successful with is we find the, who's the person who can be the advocate in the office? Oftentimes it's the PA or the allied healthcare provider who has some real passion for this. And we can go there like in, in diabetes, you know, the nurse educator, they're the ones that we can tap into. So if you can find somebody who will be the evangelist, so to speak, they'll be the ones that, that can, that can help. The other thing is tried and true case studies and best practices. <laughs> Right. No, keep it front and center. And the other thing that, that I know, a lot of times pharma companies don't want to, if it doesn't mention our brand and it doesn't you know, put that in front of the client, I don't want to spend money on it. On the other hand, there's a lot of value and a halo that a pharma company can get. If you're doing something of value that helps that physician, makes it easier you get the benefit. They'll know it was the XYZ brand rep that put that in front of them, or it was the XYZ brand that held that dinner meeting. But if you're putting in practical things they can use to make their life easier, that will be appreciated. That's a great point. Make their lives easier. And then in the end, accomplish better patient outcomes, which is what we're all striving to do across the board, right? It, it, this has been a fascinating conversation. I think this is going to be so important moving forward. And I really appreciate what you were doing, what the company is doing to move this forward and put it out there so that people start thinking about it. So I thank you so much for your time today, John. Thank you to MedThink Communications and FingerPaint Group. I can't wait to see where this goes because I think the education that you're starting to provide people and doctors and pharma companies in this space is going to make a real difference. So I Really appreciate that. I, and I appreciate you you coming to me and asking me to be here. We're very passionate about this, and it's something I can see that, that. <laughs> well, and it's something that we're doing more and more, and it makes a difference. And you think about it, why am I in this business? I'm in this business to know, in some way, some little way, I can have a hand in helping someone.
That's fantastic. So thank you again. And I hope everyone enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening. Thank you.